0: Hello and welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, a place where we discuss a wide range of topics emphasizing healing, change, and growth for abuse survivors. Drawing from personal and professional experiences, we'll discuss issues openly for those in helping positions, such as parents, educators, health and mental health professionals, and members of law enforcement.
1: This is Dr. Chris Bertelsen. Chris is a survivor, educator, and author. As a teenager, Chris was a target of a notorious child molester in his hometown, a man who went on to abduct and murder one of the victims. This abduction case went unsolved for 27 years. Chris was instrumental in helping bring attention to the cases, which were eventually solved in 2016. And this is Jordan Howard. Jordan is a therapist here in Arkansas with extensive
0: experience working with abuse victims and males in particular. In addition, Jordan works with couples and people with addiction.
1: Together, we hope to share stories and commentary of resilience and healing in a caring and lighthearted way, bringing attention to issues of abuse, addiction, and the effects on individuals and society.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Traumanomics Podcast, a place where men talk about stuff men don't talk about. I'm really grateful here today to be with Jared shiro my good friend, and we're on location here in Painesville. And you've heard me speak on the podcast about the cases, the case, the Jacob Wetterling case, Jared Shirell's case. Well, You're going to hear it right from Jared here today, folks. And we're going to put together several episodes together. Jordan is not with us for these episodes, but he will join us uh, at a later time. And the three of us will go through several aspects of all the interrelated parts of these cases. And so, I'd just like to start off. First of all, Jared, thank you for being here. Hey, hey, well, it's your place, so (laughs) thanks for coming. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to see you again. Um, So on location, we might hear uh, we might hear my dog or your dog or a train. Trains are a significant part of my upbringing here in Painesville. Spent a lot of time by the railroad tracks. So, anyway, you know, Jared, why don't you just start out? Tell us a little bit about your background. Your childhood in Cold Spring, which for our listeners is about
2: twenty miles from here, and your case—absolutely—and um, I don't have a problem doing that. It's just one of those things where once you cut me loose, it's a, it's a matter of turning it off after right. after I get going here. But uh, before I do, before I get started, I do want to uh, thank you and Jordan again for actually putting a platform of this nature out there for the people to listen to and in our hopes of actually possibly bringing others other people in to share their testimony in life and how they themselves have learned to deal with trauma or other issues associated with trauma so going back to uh, it's not so much my story as the way i like to describe it it's a it was an investigative case that is very much a part of my early childhood And uh, for those of you that are already familiar with it, it it goes back to the night of January 13th, 1989. I was 12 years old at the time and uh, had been out with a group of friends at an ice skating rink earlier in the evening and started walking home after after that gathering. It was roughly right around nine o'clock. I was walking alone in a town of about five thousand people town named Cold Spring and during the at that point, uh, I was about three blocks away from home when a car had approached me from the opposite direction and had stopped uh, the man had rolled down his window and asked me if I knew where Kramer's lived because it's a relatively small town I was familiar with the name and I was assuming he was talking to uh, a neighbor of ours back at the time. So I somewhat reluctantly started walking towards the vehicle off the, I was on the sidewalk at the time, but started uh, walking towards the car as I was explaining directions to this stranger in the, in the vehicle. And this, this man had seemed somewhat interested in what I was trying to describe. So he, he got out of the car at one point as I was near and, Before I knew it, he placed his hands on my shoulder, told me to get the fuck in the car. He had a gun, and he wasn't afraid to use it. He forced me into the backseat of his car, had me pull down my my stocking cap over my eyes, and lay down in the backseat. He then got in the car and drove me to a remote location approximately three to four miles outside of town, where he had uh, parked the car and crawled in the backseat and uh, sexually assaulted me. We won't go into those specific details, um, but it was a very traumatic episode during the course of my life, and later proved to be instrumental in helping solve a 27-year-old missing person case. So,
0: Jared, if I can just interject here briefly. Folks, for you listeners, Jared Talks Uh, sort of matter-of-factly about this, and I just want you to think about how terrified he had to be from the moment the car, the guy gets out of the car, grabs him, just the terror that uh, he experienced, that I know he experienced, just an, an unbelievable situation for a young boy to be in.
2: Absolutely, and so as I was saying, during the course of those hours that That I, where I'd been this, uh, previously been this innocent 12 year old boy uh, that I once knew, I went from from that state of mind to running in in terror and fear or or a high dose of anxiety as I continued uh, to move forward after this incident in my life. So going back to that point in time again, uh, he had went ahead with the sexual assault. He took my pants and my underwear as a souvenir to, to you was know, one of his fetishes in some way, shape, or form.
0: Right, that's pretty common. That, yes, that, and, and we, an we artifact, later found yes, out that right. they're
2: very similar very with the similar. other victims associated with this.
0: And those victims, my friends, who experienced molestations at Knife Point here in Painesville, which folks we'll get into later, but Jared had no idea that those were occurring,
2: yeah, and, and at the age of twelve, I mean, you wouldn't ask, or and, it's not uh, as if you read up on the on the newspapers at that point in, in life, or exactly. A lot of these things just weren't talked about, and that's why it's important to continue to share this story uh, for future generations to learn from this case, uh, because I I went from an unsolved case to nothing more than a case study at this point in time. And we'll get more into those details uh, later on, but you know, my life it consisted of a lot, a lot of restless nights and moments where where I would fall asleep, I- extremely exhausted, only to be reawoken by a, a dark nightmare uh, that reassured me that I was different because of this traumatic event. Uh, it it a lot of ways, uh, and day after day. I could see that this event was affecting more than just me. It was affecting my dad. It was uh, co- was constantly talking to investigators and investigators questioning me in hopes to obtain any other details in apprehending the individual responsible for my abduction and assault back in 1989. It was my brothers and sisters, uh, they took on a lot. I mean, they could see they could see that I was riddled with all of these feelings and emotions as a result of it, and I wasn't necessarily the same. I always speak about my twin brother in particular,ly because um, when you're when you know somebody or you're you're connected to somebody as strong as an identical twin, for for example, and that loved one experiences trauma. Because you inherently love them, you will automatically assume those feelings that they carry, that they're showing. So, for example, if I was showing anger and, and frustration, he would sometimes exhibit that, not fully understanding why he was that. (laughs) <laughs> but he, but he didn't want me to feel alone. Right, right. He didn't want me to feel alone at that point.
0: So, so just and because I know this, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on it for our listeners. Um, your brother, your twin brother, and you could not be any more closely I, genetically, right? ninety
2: ninety nine point nine percent of my DNA. We were, in fact, part of a Minnesota twin research study. At the in the early stages of life right around 15 but we would randomly have to go back and we do these guinea pig or, or <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> lab lab experiments uh, lab experiments, yeah, lab right? experiments in, in regards to our our identical twin uh, status we won't get into that in too much detail but he was uh i later learned uh through counseling and and just Becoming aware of why I behaved in certain ways, I could also sense that he carried some of those same traumatic uh, results as simply just being next to me. So growing after growing up next to me,
0: so after after your assault, you try you assist law enforcement. You you go back to school. You try to. Put your, with your family, you try to put your life back together as much as possible. Talk us through that just a little bit.
2: So it came to a point where, yeah, he had released me on the side of the road that night, about two and a half miles away from where I lived. And I was half naked and afraid when when he had told me to run, don't look back, or he would shoot. And that was a, proved to be a instrumental detail and helping solve the case as well, or associating the cases together. But they... I, wrote, I had ran home that night terrified I would hide uh, behind any bush anytime a car, i seen a car coming in my direction, thinking that this perpetrator had turned around and he might come back and make good on his threat of killing me. Um, he'd threatened to kill me three, three times during the course of time that I was with him. But... I had arrived home and came in through that entryway door. My parents were waiting up. It was before cell phones. It was before any of that point in time. And my dad was angry because it was after 11 o'clock. And he started lecturing me about not why I wasn't home sooner. My mother instantly realized that I was obviously something was obviously wrong with me. And I was hysterical, exhausted, uh, in a state of shock. And she started asking me. She said, "What's wrong?" And at that point, all I could say was, "A man, a man took me." And she she dialed nine one one at that point in time, and and we had reported it just you know within minutes of me uh, coming in through that door. Uh, And the local law enforcement had shown up on scene and I'd given my first of many reports regarding this incident, this case. And I can honestly say we all began to see life a little bit different and became nervous by nature. And for a while, our structured family became unstructured. I became, or I began to put up walls around me that that protected this incident i it was the shame it was the guilt it was the fear it was all of that and i was even telling my siblings that at one point not to talk about it don't talk about it don't tell other people about this uh it was stig i didn't want to be stigmatized i wanted to go back to being that innocent 12 year old boy who who just god had had every aspect of a joyful life up until this incident, and, you know, they were simply trying to understand something that I was so ashamed of. Some of them would feel it necessary to assure me that I have no reason to feel shame. Uh, They would start by saying, it wasn't your fault, you're a victim, you don't allow, don't allow yourself to feel that way, it's okay, you're safe now, and then moments later, some might ask me, If I was okay. Confusing. It was just, it was a very confusing time. And um, after the first week, I noticed a level of frustration and confusion among the Stearns County investigators. I was asked to participate in helping authorities get a better visual of the perpetrator by working with a sketch artist at that time. The investigators began by questioning me. You know, I'd always go down to Stearns Coney Law Enforcement Center and and I'd talk to a couple uh, investigators that that I had dealt with early on in the case that I came to know and, so, and be comfortable with. So
0: this is over the course of several months, right?
2: Uh well, this is uh, just after the first week. I noticed that this, you know, this
0: sense of frustration. So that, frustration
2: that soon and and so, helping identify who this person was and okay. Because this man, when he had rolled up on me and asked these questions, he had, when he had asked me the questions, the dome light came on. And that's where I got the clearest visual description of this person. So when I had done my, the first sketch with Stearns County authorities, I was recalling that recollection. But it's very, it's hard to transfer details from your head to another person who's drawn it on a pad. Yes. Uh. Their way of doing it back then, this is very early on, but their way of doing it is I would sit in the Stearns County Law Enforcement Center and and we would go over these three ring binders and I'd look at profile pictures of all these criminals, whether it be uh, federal convictions or gross misdemeanor convictions, or whether it's DWI charges or pedophiles or, you know, they were just looking for, they had a, a very broad way of. Trying to help them sketch the person responsible. So when I was looking through these pictures, if somebody's nose resembled it, I would show that. If somebody's ears resembled it, I would point that out. Um,
0: so the other thing too is at the end, after he dropped you off at the car and sent you home, he threatened to kill you. Right? If you, if he, if law enforcement
2: got close to you, correct? Uh, before before he released me. I was in tears and and going, a lot of thoughts going through my head, but, uh, at the time he had released me, he had told me at one point, it's okay to talk about this, but if they ever come close to finding out who I am, I will find you first and kill you. And it, maybe not in those exact words, but it was in reference, in that reference. So, it It lingered with me for for many years, like how close are we to finding this guy now, and how close are we you know uh, the authorities you know haven't found leads or
0: right and i'm and i'm I'm asking you that everything. Jared, because we're I'm picturing you sitting in there surrounded by law enforcement who want you to figure out who this guy is and you have this threat. You had to have had that threat in the back of your mind. I know you did.
2: Right. My, you, you know, my dad was always because I was a juvenile too. Mind, I, uh, my dad was always there. He was always instrumental. He was, yeah, he was kind of like my uh, comfort blanket in a way. But he was always with me for for the most part on every every time I had to interview with uh, investigators he encouraged me to do my best to describe every little detail take my time and don't be afraid of of what the man said if the police, you know in reference to if they ever come f- close to finding me i'll find you first and kill you he he encouraged me that you know that 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 won't happen those words are so deeply embedded in my mind that i have even questioned police reports that worded it differently or failed to mention it those words to me implied that he was coming back to get me and at that at the very least he was watching me or my twin brother or our family for that matter just watching the fear control our you know our lives and the way we struggled you know we struggled to you know to maintain a normal life without fear and right. so I began the quest to find the man I feared the most. Uh, the investigators placed the first three, you know, the, those those three ring binders in front of me, and I started looking at these mugshots. And eventually, we came up with the first sketch. So powerful uh, stuff. And that was all prior to Jacob Wetterling's abduction.
0: So um just as we finish up here with this episode a reminder to folks that in Painesville in the in the mid 80s 1987 86 87 in there were a series of child molestations by knife point now we're advancing a, a year and a half or so to Jared's assault these events happened in isolation and in our next episode Jared is going to talk about, and I'll talk about from my perspective, the Jacob Wetterling abduction, which happened um, in October of 1989. So we're going to be going from Painesville, 18 miles to Cold Spring, where Jared's assault took place, and then we're going to go down the road a little further and about 10 months later to Jacob's abduction, and we'll pick up um, on our next episode with that. Jared, thank you so much. We really appreciate you um, sharing your story and we'll pick up here on the next
1: episode. All right. This podcast is made available by Upstart Resilience, LLC for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the subject matter. This podcast is not designed to give specific professional advice. By using this podcast, you understand that there is no counselor-client relationship nor any other professional relationship between you and the hosts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute Competent professional advice from a licensed professional in your state.